what you think you know. Life has a funny way of reminding you of that. Take, for instance, the Berenstein Bears. There they are. Most of you are familiar with them. They're a popular, long-standing series of children's books. Now, I have a question for you. How do you think you spell Berenstein? I'm going to give you two options. You got option number one, Berenstein. Option number two, Berenstein. If you think it's number one, raise your hand. All right. If you think it's number two, raise your hand. Oh, wow. A lot for number two. Well, uh, I'm very glad for how many raised their hand on number two because it demonstrates that I'm not alone in my confusion and ignorance. Uh, the correct spelling is number one. And when I learned that, it absolutely blew my mind because I was totally convinced that the spelling was number two. It ended E-I-N. I never thought twice about it. Now, of course, this is a bit of a silly example. But I think most of us have had an experience of this kind in one way or another. When you really think you know something, you grow blind to considering the finer details. And this is a hazard that we can encounter in the faith as well. We can get to a point where we figure we know everything and just kind of shut our brains off. We just go on cruise control. But when we really pay attention to the scriptures, we'll get disabused of that notion pretty quickly. There's always more to learn, even about those things that seem most familiar. In verses 41 through 46 here in Matthew 22, we see that this holds true for the Pharisees as well. Now, it's really interesting here. At the end of chapter 22, you recall everything that has proceeded beforehand, where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all of them have taken their turns trying to trick Jesus with um, some questions meant to make him stumble. But now here at the end of the chapter, Jesus turns the tables. He has a question for them. And so we find Jesus here coming to a crowd of Pharisees, a group of Pharisees, and in Mark 12, it indicates that there was other people around as well. So Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees, but there's other people listening in. And he comes to them with this question. He says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, I'll remind you about who the Messiah is is just generally speaking. Because for some of us, Messiah is just a word unto itself, but it has an actual meaning behind it. In the original language, in Mashiach, the Hebrew, it means anointed one. And what it's referring to is this promised king who was to come that would restore the fortunes of Israel, overthrow those who had, con who had conquered Israel, and usher in a new, a new age of utter peace 
injustice. So that's who the Messiah is, just generally speaking. The question here that Jesus asked, though, is whose son is he? Now, if you know your Old Testament, and the Pharisees certainly did, this would have seemed like a very easy question. Maybe one of the easiest questions you could have possibly asked. When we look at 2 Samuel 7, 7 verses 12-13, we find the covenant that God makes with King David, which sets up this anticipation for a promised king, this promised Messiah. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, it says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, what's interesting about this covenant that is made with David is that there's some ways in which it's fulfilled imminently, um, shortly after the time of David, um, through his son Solomon, who did build um, the earthly temple. Um, But there's other aspects about this covenant that apparently look forward to one who is to come, because we understand that Solomon's kingdom did not last forever, and yet God is telling David here that... um, the throne of his kingdom, of one of his sons, is going to last forever. So you have that basic foundation, the Davidic covenant, this promised king, it's going to be one of David's sons. And we have this repeated in the prophets. You look at Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 4. There God speaks through the prophet, saying, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So all kinds of descriptors that apply to this messianic figure, this anointed king who is to come. You look also at the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 33, verses 15 through 16. It says, In those days and at that time I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. So explicitly about the Messiah and saying that this Messiah is going to come from David's line. And so given all of that, the Pharisees just naturally go to the textbook to answer here and tell Jesus, well, the son of David. David is the father of the Messiah. Now this question is, is so simple that we have to imagine that the Pharisees were probably a bit suspicious, even as they gave their answer. Why was Jesus asking them this? Was he about to declare that he is the son of David? That he is the Messiah? What's the next shoe to drop? Well, Jesus doesn't offer any declaration here. He just asks a follow-up question. But it's a question with a nuclear point. We move on to verses 43 through 46. 
Jesus asked them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Hmm. Interesting question. And it's a question that Jesus draws from one of the Psalms. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7. And I want to read, he only quotes from the first verse, but I want to read all seven verses because I kind of, it gives you the whole picture of, of how this is related to the Messiah. So Psalm 110. This is a psalm from David. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. It's a, it's a psalm that's filled with all kinds of astounding promise of this king who would come, who would overthrow all the rulers of the earth. And if you even pick up on the language of, of how he would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, we see how in the book of Hebrews that's drawn out and made um, explicitly connected with Christ, that Christ is this coming high priest who intercedes on our behalf. But Jesus isn't really focusing on those. He's focusing on just that first verse. Because he, under, he knows that they know that this verse relates to the Messiah. And so he, he points out a few things. Okay, it is David who wrote this psalm. And when David wrote it, he wrote it with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so his word is reliable because it is the word of God. It's without error. The next thing that he points out is how you have these two appearances of the Lord. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, there's something that I think will be helpful for you. Maybe you've never noticed this in the English text, but sometimes when you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll notice how the Lord is in all caps, and then sometimes it's in lowercase, or just the first L is capitalized. There's a reason for that. It's, it's signaling to you that there's a difference in the Hebrew word being used here. So when it's all caps, it's referring to the, the divine name for God, Yahweh. Um, when it's referring in the lowercase, Lord, it's often um, using uh, the word Adonai, um, which could, have, could apply to um, an earthly Lord, a merely earthly Lord, but which is also applied to God. Um, and so you see both being used for God. Um, and so just because this one is lowercase doesn't indicate that there's not something divine being implied here about this second Lord. 
The second Lord is the one who's being interpreted as being this one who is the Messiah. But what's really interesting here is that David says that this Messiah, this Lord, is his Lord. Now, the thing that's curious about that is um, this is supposed to be his son. (laughs) This is supposed to be his son. Why would he refer to his own son as my Lord? Now, that would be a little bit weird today, even for us, (laughs) I think. Even when, you know, your kids all grow up, wouldn't it be weird if, if your dad... Uh, came, approached you and said, excuse me, sir, if he did that, <laughs> you think he's just go, go, goofing around. He's, you know, doesn't go that way. If anyone's going to be calling anyone, sir, it's the son that calls the father, sir. And if we can understand that intuitively today, that that would be a little bit weird for a son to, uh, for, for a father to approach his son in that way, all the more back then. It would have been astronomically weird back then for a father to call his son Lord. And David is a great king. So why would he refer to anyone as Lord other than God himself? And so this just underscores again the question that Jesus asks. Whose son is the Messiah? Whose son is this Lord? And now if this was a movie, I would then plug into the movie a flashback to everything that we've talked about in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I want to just take you quickly through some verses in which we see Jesus talking about his sonship as it relates to the Father. You see in Matthew... um, 3, 17, at the time of Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then in Matthew 10, 32-33, verse 40, we see Jesus again talking about the special relationship that he has with the Father, such that anyone who acknowledges him before others will also acknowledge that he would also acknowledge them before his Father in heaven. And basically, the the word of the Son is as good as the word of of the Father. Um, And that if you reject the Son, you're rejecting the Father. Um, And then we see in Matthew 11, 27, that all things have been committed to him by his Father, referring again to his heavenly Father, not Joseph. He's talking about God. Um... Go to Matthew 14, 33. Um, his disciples, when they're in the boat with him, uh, they've seen him walk across water. Uh, they begin worshiping him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now that's a pretty astounding combination here. First, that, you know, that they're calling him the Son of God, but that, that's combined with them worshiping him. Because that's a big no-no. It's a big no-no to worship a human being. That's like the worst thing you could do in the Old Testament, in, in, in the Jewish religion. And so they're recognizing that Jesus is different. He's not like any other man. 
And of course, you'll remember this in Matthew 16, 16. When Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So, the point that Jesus is trying to make here in asking this question is that the Messiah is the Son of God. And so, if the if, if the Pharisees and the other religious leaders are feeling like Jesus is insinuating that he is the Messiah, then by virtue of this point that he's making, Jesus is also insinuating that he is the sin of God. And he's already made that claim pretty explicitly, as we've just seen in those verses. Now, what's interesting, we see, we see further on in the New Testament how... Um, the apostles put Psalm 110 to use and pointing to the identity of Christ. We see in Acts 2, verses 34 through 35, when Peter's giving his, his gospel message before the crowds of Jerusalem, he says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We see... In Hebrews 1.13, again, that same language of sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet being employed. Um, and being employed in order to demonstrate that Jesus is greater than the angels because God did not say this to any, any of the angels. He only said this to his son. Paul, talking about the age which is to come, talks about Christ reigning until God has put all, all of his enemies under his feet. And the same is also being referred to also in Hebrews 10.13. And so Jesus is making this point that the Messiah is the Son of God and implying that he, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and yet he is not denying that the Messiah is the Son of David. And if we go through Matthew, we see that um, the Gospel writer has been just as interested to make the connection between Jesus and, as being the son of David. He's been just as interested in making that connection clear as in making the, it clear that he's the son of God. From the very get-go, you open up to the Gospel of Matthew, verse 1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then you get down to verse 17. Thus were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. So Matthew's putting a stake in the ground. Jesus is from this Davidic line. He has all the claim to the title of Messiah. And then you go forward. I'm not going to read all these verses, but we'll, we'll put them up there. You guys can just put them up there. You, you recall the, all these times in which people have called upon Jesus as, as the son of David. And there's a point, again, in, Ma in Matthew recording these, that in recording people calling upon Jesus in this manner, they are, in fact, testifying to who Jesus is, especially as he responds to them and is able to show them the mercy that they desire, that they're calling for. And of course, when we go just back to the previous chapter, we see how the crowds of Jerusalem welcomed Jesus, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. So if Jesus is the son of David, that must mean that he is 
human. Because that's the only way that one could be human in order to be the son of David. There has to be a, a genetic succession there. And we see, again, within the New Testament, plenty of testimony indicating that Jesus was human. You go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 2.40. talks about how Jesus grew and became strong. There's a maturation process that Jesus goes through. So he's without sin, and yet he does go through the regular growth process of any human being. We see in Mark 13.32. says, But about that day or the hour, and this is Jesus speaking, but about that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now sometimes like passages like this can really throw us off. Like it seems like, okay, is Jesus less than God then? How is it that he can't know? Can't know. But we have to hold all the pieces together here in order to put together the puzzle. So again, we keep keep moving forward and we see other other things like this. John 6:38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, praying, yet not as I will, but as you will. Again, when Peter's preaching in Acts 2, he says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. And then Paul in 1 Timothy 2 confesses, for there is one God and one meteor between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So we've seen that Jesus is the Son of God, that he can be worshipped, and so that he is divine. We've also seen, though, that he's the Son of David, and that he's human. He is a man. How do we reconcile these things? We reconcile them by confessing the mystery that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And this is what the scripture testifies to. We look at John 1.14. When John speaks about the word, he's talking about Jesus. He makes that clear as he goes forward in his gospel. So he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and true. So there was a time when Jesus was not Jesus, he was just the pre, he was the pre-incarnate Son, the Son of God, the divine became human, took on human flesh. The word became flesh. We go to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 1:20. Joseph is getting ready to divorce Mary because he thinks that she's cheated on him. But then he's met by an angel in a dream who tells him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is fully human. His mother is fully human. But his origin is not from the line of Adam. Because his father is different. In Hebrews 
the writer of the epistle says this very explicitly. He says, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. So isn't it that interesting? It's, he's talking about that he's fully human, but he had to be made so, which, which is indicating that if he wasn't human before, he was divine. And so he was fully divine, and he is made fully human in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And this isn't any kind of innovation, like just something that people in the New Testament era made up. I've referred to this, this passage here in Daniel 7 a few times because it's one of my favorite passages, and it's one of those that you should kind of mark down. Because it's really helpful in explaining to people how it is that Jesus really fulfills biblical prophecy, especially when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, the prophet Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So you have this interesting combination here of one who is the son of man who is yet receiving all the things which belong only to God. I think the Apostle Paul kind of helps us understand the duality at work here. Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul starts his epistle to the Romans by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Paul's saying, this isn't anything new. This is something that God has been talking about in the Old Testament. Who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and through the and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God empowered by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remember that language of Lord. David said, to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. What Paul's saying here is that Jesus is fully human. He's from the line of David. But he was also appointing the Son of God through the Spirit of holiness. I mean, to try to wrap your mind around this, you know, you, you can take it apart bit by bit. But the idea here is, is that Jesus, in being conceived by the Holy Spirit, was the Son of God. He is fully God. But when it talks about him being appointed, it's bouncing back to his human nature. So whenever you see Jesus being appointed and exalted and being lifted up by God, what that's referring to now is this incarnate, incarnate reality that he has taken on. Because we understand that none of these things properly belong to human beings. Worship doesn't belong to regular human beings. But it now belongs to this human being. Because this human being is different. He's fully God. 
We see this summarized in the Athanasian uh, Creed, which was put together around the end of uh, the 500s AD, early 600 AD. It's named the Athanasian Creed after Athanasius, um, which was an early church father. He didn't write it, though, but they named it the Athanasian Creed because it reflects a lot of his priorities in trying to tease out the reality of who God is. And this is what the Creed says about Jesus and his nature. He says, For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God, the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man, of substance of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father, as touching his Godhead. So it's not like the Father's up here and the Son's down here. No, they're both perfectly equal. And inferior to the Father, as touching his manhood. Understanding how this inferiority works as it regards Jesus' human nature helps explain so much when you come across passages in Scripture where it seems like Jesus isn't maybe as high as, as being the Son of God. No, he is. What those passages are referring to, though, is the fact that he is fully, completely human. Who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. It's not like Jesus has like multiple personalities or something. He is one person. He is one Jesus Christ. One not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God. One altogether not by confusion of substance, but by the unity of the person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. So when the Word became flesh, it wasn't like a conversion sort of thing. It wasn't like translating English into French or something like that. Because Jesus fully retained his full divinity, but he became also fully human. So what this means is that God took human nature unto himself. And Martin Luther uses this analogy, and I'll confess that analogies can always have their shortcomings, but I've always found it kind of helpful. If we can almost think about God as this fire, and we think about humanity as like a rod of iron, when you put the rod of iron in the fire, it remains iron, but it takes on the qualities of the fire as well. It, becomes, it begins to glow with the fire. So you're able to distinguish between the two, the iron and the fire. But the unity within Jesus is greater than that between, between iron and fire, because those are two still very both separable. But in Jesus, you have the two, but they're united like a human being with spirit and body. Very united whole. And just in that way, the divine and human have been united in Christ, even while they remain distinguishable. Now, stepping away from thinking about all the theological details, which hopefully haven't made your head spin too much. We return to the Pharisees. 
If the Pharisees hope to bring charges of blasphemy against Jesus for indicating that he is both the Messiah and the Son of God, he has just shown them that God's word confirms his testimony by taking them to Psalm 110. They are left speechless and don't dare ask him any more questions. And the next time they question him is on the night when the Sanhedrin arrest him in order to crucify him. The Pharisees couldn't get over their blindness. They clung to what they knew, to what was familiar. They couldn't handle the mystery of Christ. But we should believe in mysteries. The natural world alone is full of them, from quantum physics to the nature of light to the relation between brains and minds, how you get a mind out of physical matter. There are many things that we believe, even though we don't fully comprehend them. The easy thing to do with Jesus is to say that he's either just God or that he's just a man. We can imagine God visiting us as a spiritual apparition. We can imagine Jesus as a man, lined up alongside all the other prophets and philosophers of our world. But what exceeds our imagination is a person who is both fully human and fully God. Yet that is precisely who Jesus is. The scriptures attest to it. And it's the only sufficient explanation for the facts. The fact is that no human being has been able to measure up to Jesus. And that highlights our problem. Left to our own devices, we never get our act together. But to get right with God, we must make amends for our rebellion, for all the damage that we've caused. And we must be fixed so we can live with God in the age to come. It's a real quagmire because none of us can deliver on that. None of us can save ourselves. Never mind the world. We need help from somewhere else. Help that will stand in our shoes and bear the cost of setting things right. Jesus is that help from somewhere else. He is the Son of God, and He has stood in our shoes. It's the only explanation that can make sense of the cross in the empty tomb. You cannot crucify a spirit. You can only crucify a human being. But if Jesus is only a human being, He should have stayed dead. Because everyone and his brother knew that they were crucifying Jesus because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be divine. If he is resurrected from the dead, his claims are proven to be true. If he was lying about being the Son of God, God wouldn't have let that happen. But it did happen. Christ did rise from the dead. 
His resurrection offers the only satisfactory explanation for how cowardly disciples who previously abandoned Jesus when he was arrested suddenly became courageous after testifying that they had seen him alive, that he spoke with them, that he ate with them. If Jesus has risen from the dead, it can only be explained by the reality that he is both fully God and fully human. So also, the reality that he is fully God and fully human is the only explanation for how he can save us. The Messiah is the Son of David, and he is the Son of God. Let us pray. Dear Father, we stand in awe of the revelation of Christ. We stand in awe of the revelation of the Messiah. That not only, Father, is He the Son of David, proving Your promises true, but that also the Messiah is the Son of God. And that this is all met together in Jesus Christ. Father, we give thanks for the salvation You've offered us in Him. That by sending Your Son, You've made a way for us to be truly saved. That in sending Your Son, You've given us a King who can be truly worshipped and followed to the ends of the earth. Father, help us to testify to the reality of who Jesus is. Help us to press into the mystery and to study the scriptures, Father, so that we wouldn't become blind to all the riches that are hidden therein. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.